Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm delighted to be here with you today and with my good friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since last week where you disastrously said that Mary O'Rourke had died on an episode about media misinformation? Did I say that she died? Uh, well, I didn't listen back to it, but from the sheer amount of emails and private messages I got on Twitter, I'm going to assume you did. But what I think say was she was no longer in the doll and act, active in politics. I didn't think, or unless, of course, maybe I did. I don't know. Of course, it's possible in my fogged and desperate brain state that I was confusing her with her late brother. Couldn't have done it on an episode that was about something other than the media talking about things they don't understand. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there you go. It's just, it, these are always useful things. Now that Michael has been appropriately chastised, you can stop sending me emails. No, send them emails, please. Do. Complain. Before we get... Actually, actually, there is something I wanted to ask listeners to send me emails about, if they're interested in this. Um, not related to any news item. A situation arose during the week where in... Um, there's, there's all this stuff, Michael, about books with inappropriate content for children. But America actually has an entire industry full of uh, books published with a concern for what children are, are reading. Often these are political books that will strip out certain uh, you know, modern political and cultural beliefs. And sometimes they're just non-political, but deliberately so, which I suppose is a political measure anyway. And that comes out of what we've seen kind of recently with people saying that a lot of the books that are designed for children are effectively propaganda or push particular cultural standpoints that people may or may not support, but don't want effectively being given to their children without their knowledge. And so there was a, an odd situation that came up where we might, uh, we as in Gripped, might have the opportunity to print and distribute some of those books. Now, probably starting with something, you know, very colourful and non-political, just a good old-fashioned, you know, children's story kind of thing. But if you are listening and you think that might be the sort of thing you're interested in and that we should go forward and actually print these and then sell them, please do send me an email because I have absolutely no idea what the demand is for this sort of stuff. And I will assure you, uh, listener, that if this goes ahead... I will be handling it, not Michael, so it will actually happen. Unlike the Italian wine club, which I remain waiting for, as I know many of our listeners do. Where is that wine club, Michael? When will the oh, listeners get the wine club? God, no, please. The, the wine club has become a, like, not a stone in my shoe, but a thorn in my shoe. Every, every, time, I fe every time I feel that we're, we, we are actually a step closer to achieving it, then whoever had been had agreed that they would do whatever it was that I wanted them to do, drops out. And I still want to find... Anyway, no, I'm not going to talk about it because it only just... It leaves me open to more attacks from you from everything I say, which you, I know, derive a considerable degree of pleasure out of. And it also just raises my BPM on to above levels that I, 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 well, I wanted to. Michael, I'm not attacking you. I'm not angry with you. I'm just disappointed. I love that. Sorry, no. There's a line from Yes Minister where Sir Humphrey was called in to see the head of the civil service, the head boss, the chief, cabinet secretary. And he, in it he says, I'm not going so far as to actually reprimand you, Humphrey, of course. And when this is recounted to, to the to the ministry, says, "Oh my God, blood on the floor!" 
I'm not actually angry with you, no. <laughs> God, talk about weasel, passive-aggressive weasel words. <laughs> if it's any consolation to our listeners who have been waiting over a year, Michael, for you to import this wine, yeah. they may not be the only people who are going without fine Italian and French wines. Because as an interesting little thing, because we have actually been attempting to get this off the ground and have therefore been talking to people who are involved in the wine space in both of these countries, it turns out that they are very, very unhappy about a requirement that wine should have certain things on its labels. Now, I recently went over to Tallinn and there were a lot of uh, Italian MEPs there. There were a lot of Italian government kind of people and they all wanted to talk about this bloody wine thing. And the interesting thing, Michael, was that they they had two lines. One was that it's misinformation and, you know, a mere one to two glasses of wine, a meal is perfectly healthy and we shouldn't tell people it isn't. But the other line they took and this is not anything that would ever be considered in Ireland because, you know, we don't care, was that they put a lot of effort into the labels of their bottles and they, you know, these things are beautiful, particularly, you know, on, on high-level wine, Michael. Incredible amounts of effort, incredible amounts of money, incredible amounts of design into this to create something that they consider beautiful. And a shocking amount of the Italians said things like, well, we will not import if we have to deface are products like this. And from what you were telling me, Michael, you've had the similar region when you've been talking to producers and, and people involved in the trade. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a friend of mine, Gabriele Tosi, his father was, he's probably an architect in that latter end of his career. He became one of the most important designers of wine labels for fine wines in Italy. Now, fine wines, premium wines, it's kind of, a, it's, a, it's an ambiguous term, but there are several hundreds of wines that would fall into sort of the top the top end category in wine in Italy. And they spend a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of care on the design of their wines and of their bottles and of the whole thing. It's an aesthetic experience for them. And uh, Gab was saying, you know, there's no way in the world they're going to touch this. Um, Leslie Williams, the, he's the, the wine writer, for, is the, I think it's the end of I was saying that he, he, he was writing, he said that the, the fine wine producers and the small producers, like saying the, the the organic wine producers, the the biodynamic guys, just will not bother sending wine to Ireland because if you're talking fine stuff, like say you're talking stuff like um, Gaia, uh, uh, Bar- Bar- Barolo Barbaresco, or you're talking something like I don't know, uh, Lovanfi, maybe Brunello, something like you know top end wines, uh, any of the sort of the three the three. Uh, Three prawns in the the red gambaro. Uh, they can sell those wines anywhere. The words are not going to bother. But I was actually talking to a guy. Paolo is one. He's a, he's a producer in Pianola Vastidone, and one of the guys that he hope eventually might actually send us some wine. Paolo produces the unusual things, Coturno and Matruco, but he's a small producer, and his position was very simple. If he has to produce two sets, he's not going to bother getting two sets of labels. Just won't. It's going to cost them extra. And the thing is, when you're selling bottles out retail at like two quid, two fifty, your your margins are quite small. I mean, you might say, Asher, what difference does it make? It 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 will be an extra cost to him. It won't be a massive one. But he, why would he bother? But so the small producers, the organic people, the organic, the biodynamic people, but also the top quite. If you're selling, can you imagine Chateau Ikem, Chateau Margot? 
Romani County. I mean, Gary, the Romani County sells, I don't know what, these days, but we're talking thousands of pounds, some of these vineyards, a bottle. No, that's another question that we ask. Will this only apply to new wines or will it apply to older vintages? Because if it's a health issue, surely it'll have to apply to all wine. You can't discriminate between wines after this and before this because then you'd have older vintages without it. But if it's older vintages, then they're going to have to come up with some kind of stick-on label or stamp. And you could have bottles of rare bottles of rare vintages, great vintages of things like Ikem and, and Conti, which is literally thousands of pounds a bottle. They are not going to vandalize those bottles for the sake of something which they think is absolutely ridiculous. Now, if, and God forbid, this was to turn into some kind of trans-European legislation, and by the way, with the Spanish and the French and the Italians and the Germans, because Germany is also a very significant wine uh, producer, the Greeks are so, the Greeks, the Romanians, the Hungarians, the Portuguese, you know, <laughs> not that. It's just not going to happen that this is going to be a, a trans-European, so it's going to be us. And all that will happen is that we just won't get the nice wine. Also, will there, will there be people in Ross Lair if you're bringing your, your truckload? Like, say, please God, one day it actually happens that we bring truckloads of wine in through the ports. Will we have to be stopped and have our wine checked that it has is carrying the correct labelling? It's, it's all mad. But it, the, the aesthetic is really important to them. That had not occurred to me, but they genuinely, cost side, yes, but the aesthetic, they're really pissed off with the idea that they're going to rule their bottles with this nonsense. If you are an important wine brand, like if you are a large wine brand and you have sales all over the world, the, like, the high-level wine market is insane. The, the level of demand in it is ludicrous. You have options of where to sell. So you have all of this stuff where there's a question of ruining the appearance of the bottle but also are you if you have this marginal market off to the side of somewhere the first is going to piss you off by suggesting this but even if you wanted to go into it you would have to produce a separate label which take you know which is a cost and it takes time and it takes a factory space but from a branding perspective michael it then means that someone will have the opportunity to take photos of your um goods with a warning on it that it causes cancer. And that can be displayed globally. So why would you do that? The, the level of concern these organizations have for their image, particularly in the wine market, is insane. So this will be wonderful, Michael, if you know we put in this tiny law that we don't really think about because we don't really think it's that important. And then suddenly you can no longer get good wine in this country or at least not at the higher levels um i'm not sure that's a vote winner either but for those who say well why are they reacting so badly i would give this uh, example or, or this kind of hypothetical to you if one of the european countries decided that all imported uh beef or milk or butter had to have a warning on it that it could cause cancer how many irish producers do you think would be happy about that and how many do you think would look at their market share and just go, fuck it? Absolutely. And we know, for example, that a, a, a diet which is high or excessively high in red meat is correlated with a higher incidence of colon cancer. Um, butter, uh, fats, that kind of... Uh, nitrates in, in bacon have been associated with cancer. It would be a perfectly reasonable thing to do. And 
And I think as well about the the wine business is obviously a business, but for many people it's more than that. It's also a it's a culture. It's it's something. And for some of these families, it's a very ancient thing that going back a very very long way. There there are lads down in Tuscany who've been making wine for four or five hundred years. You've got people Germany. Some of the, the some of the vineyards in Germany are really ancient, and if you're talking about the very top level, like top level rieslings that can sell for hundreds and hundreds of pounds a bottle. Okay, Burgundy's been going mad for years. Bordeaux now is it, it's historically obviously had some incredibly expensive wines, but losing the run of itself. The Piemonte, the great wines of Piemonte, the Super Tuscans, even the big the big. In Veneto, like the Amarones of the, the top class Amarones are going crazy money. That like you say, Gary, some of the some are parts of the the, the wine market are and, and not just in Europe. I mean you try and buy a bottle of Opus One from California or you get Grange or something like Grange from South Africa from uh, Australia, Penfold Grange. These are they're they will take it as a personal insult, the idea that you're gonna say that they're they are making and selling a product. That could make you sick because if, if let's face it, unless you're a very very rich man indeed, if you're drinking Opus One or Grange, you're going to be drinking a bottle of that a year, having saved up all year for it. And trying to make the argument that drinking a bottle of red wine every six months is going to give you cancer is going to be a very tough sell indeed. They will take they, they will take this as a personal affront to their product, and they just won't. No, no, we won't do that. We will not endorse the idea that our product is bad for you. Is there is going to be their response? I didn't realise until I, I met some of the Italian MEPs and, and political people how pissed they were about this and how much attention they'd been paying to it. I mean, Politico, uh, which is very widely read in, in Brussels, had a piece on this um, during the week and they're going to keep covering it because the Italians are furious. The Italians are genuinely, it is a big thing and they are absolutely infuriated infuriated by it. I mean, the French may also be furious about it, but they're furious about so many things that you kind of just kind of melds together. Whereas the Italians go from very calm to, to very angry. And also the French are a bit busy being furious about all sorts of things in France at the moment, so they haven't maybe noticed. But the Spanish the Spanish will be, and, and, and the Germans will be, although German imports into Ireland the top end, the Germans, German wine market is very strong strong domestically so the top end German wine tends to stay in Germany which is a pity because they make some fantastic wines but the Italians I mean just to give a context to it one of the few moments of unanimity and unity in, our, in Italian politics I remember in the 90s was when there was there was a proposal briefly to ban the use of wood-fired pizza ovens on the basis that uh, they were potentially carcinogenic Cooking pizza in pizza ovens. Um, I th- you you may or may not know that if you anything which is singed or burnt on the outside, say for example if you're barbecuing and it's sort of slightly you see you you char the outside of your pizza steak or whatever, there is a link between that kind of food and uh, cancer. And Berlusconi was prime minister and with his own people popularist, but hated by the opposition. Berlusconi said Italy would leave the EU rather than submit to this kind of dictatorship that they were, the, the idea that Italians would not be allowed to make their pizzas in wood-fired pizzas was just outrageous. And the whole country joined in with them. It's absolutely bloody. They, uh, they, 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 they take these things far more seriously than we do. 
Put it that way. I mean, the the, the Politico piece says that the Italian foreign minister called this a, a plan uh, this a uh, an attack on his country's identity and heritage, oh, and God. called on the Commission to intervene on the matter at the World Trade Organization. But the uh, the departments. Uh, the Department of Health gave an explanation of how this would work to Politico, which said basically, well, actually, it's not illegal to import an alcohol product which doesn't have the required warning into Ireland, but it's illegal to sell it. So either if you want to sell to Ireland, you're going to have to basically either design your label specifically or put a sticker on before shipping or the retailer is going to have to then put a sticker on your label over something else which I don't think they will, uh, the Italians will find any more workable. I, I've got to say, Michael, I absolutely love this thing. I love this story because it is, it is the perfect example of someone in Ireland going, let's just do this thing, sure, who would care? And then realising, oh God, lots of people actually care very much. And then we faced with, with, the, with the terrible prospect, the awful vista, that one of our ministers or senior civil servants goes out for a, a bite to eat, maybe in Chapter One or Patrick Guibos, and orders a, a bottle of his his favorite Burgundy or Bordeaux, and he's told, "I'm sorry, we have no more, we have no bananas today. They refuse to sell to us anymore because of Irish policy." Michael, going to dine at Chapter One or Patrick Guibos is punishment in and of itself. <laughs> I disassociate those my comment from those comments, and any 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 suits or lawsuits should be directed exclusively to Gary. I've been to both within the last year, and it was just they're not good restaurants. They're not just not good, not for the money they charge and what they present themselves. Uh, they don't hit their mark. They are fantastic restaurants, and I endorse them heartily. Actually, speaking of a um, of a minister, oh, this isn't a minister. This is a Green Party spokesman. Uh, getting into a, a bit of a fracas. Did you see this report, Michael, from Transport Infrastructure Ireland on uh, this, road speeds? Yes, I, this is lovely. I, I, this, I enjoyed this report very much. I, I have not seen this actual report. I've only seen the reporting on it in the Business Post by uh, Daniel Murray, who actually has. He, he's pretty good at getting this sort of stuff out. So what appears to have happened, according, they say, because they FOI'd all this, was the uh, Transport Infrastructure Ireland, who handle all of Ireland's roads, were asked to look at the feasibility of lowering the speed on the motorway. And then they came back with a study looking at the feasibility of doing so and the impact of it. And um, the Green Party didn't like what they came back with. Because I think, Michael, what you know those situations where you sit down and someone has to do something, but everyone understands it should come out a particular way? Like the answer is kind of already clear to everyone, but one person is just that little bit muddled and goes away and uh, just comes back with the wrong answer. So when TII did it, they said, well, if we do this, if we go from 120 to 110 kilometers, it will have basically no impact on emissions. It will cost 3.8 billion euro. Sorry, Gary, just a quick, sorry, could, could you repeat that number? Because that is a number worth repeating. 3.8 3.8 billion euro. Billion. And it will result in up to 35 more people dying on Irish roads a year. 
it's 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 because I say I was where I had like you I'd read I'd read about it in, in, in the business post I'd seen other comment elsewhere after after the report. I haven't seen the report because my understanding is that nobody outside of government has because as he Daniel Murray says in his article, he refers to the original report, which I think is quite nice because there is another report on the way. So the report goes into the government, I think, in March of 2022. And the Green Party don't like this, Michael. These are the wrong results. The report is meant to say good things will happen. Good things that don't cost 3.8 billion euro. So they basically say, you have to go back and do it again. This is ridiculous. And interestingly enough, Michael, they say they've got to do it in conjunction with the, the National Transport Authority, almost as if the NTA would know the right answer and, you know, wouldn't have any of this, this you know, these problems. And Brian Ledden, who's the Green Party spokesperson, uh, his reaction to the report was also caught by the um, Business Post. And he seems to think this is absolutely ridiculous. It's ludicrous. It does not adhere to what we've seen in other res- reports. All of these things, Michael, you think the report is a shambles. But while I haven't seen the report, I have seen the reasoning of the TII explained, and I've talked to someone who is familiar with the shape of the original report. And here's what they said, Michael. The cost is due to its impact on the economy, because you slow everything down. It's a tiny cost per unit, but over the entirety of the economy and and the transport infrastructure, it's actually quite impactful. It's cumulative. That seems it's a massive cumulative effect, yes. And then they say, and the debts are actually a very simple thing as well, Michael, because the statistical safety of different roads, whether a motorway, a national, local, whatever, is actually very well studied. Yes, it is. And what they said is, it, well, if you cut the speed on motorways, people will use more direct routes Instead of sticking on the motorway and then coming off it, they'll use local or national roads or whatever roads are there. And those roads are less safe. And so we can use that basically to give you a variety of estimates of how many people are going to die. Which, if you are a government minister, you don't want to report saying you're going to kill 35 people if you do this. As you say, it's not surprising. There was a report, I think we might have adverted to the podcast, came out a few months ago, which did it. An analysis of the safest motorways, or not the, the fatalities and incidents on motorways in Europe in in Europe last year. Now, there, I have seen different reports which give different results. In I think in this one, uh, Ireland had the safest. Now, I'm talking obviously per capita and based on motorway size, network size, etc. But all of this, the all these weightings have been taken into account, and Ireland came up with the safest motorways in Europe. If you're if you're doing something to incentivize now our our national roads are still are actually pretty safe. The least safe roads are then the, the the secondary roads, the country roads. And if you're doing something to incentivize people to move off motorways and onto these onto those roads, are you de-incentivizing uh, motorways, which is really more what would happen because you you take a motorway because you can travel at that speed and it's straight. You are going to increase fatality. You're going to increase accidents and fatalities. No, and the other thing is, Gary. While obviously the most concerning figure is the thirty-five people, in theoretically would die, that isn't taking into account 
the increased numbers of accidents that will occur, decreased numbers of people who will be hurt and injured and possibly seriously injured and perhaps left with the with permanent with with permanent disabilities because of them. the headline figure obviously is mortality, but underneath those then there will be a whole series of other uh, other negative outcomes. The interesting thing with reports of these kinds is they're often written as if you know this is the answer, but you can't really predict with certainty. Like if you lower the uh, maximum speed in the motorway by ten kilometers, how many people are actually going to stop using the motorway, and how many journeys and all of that thing? But the the TII report was actually quite good in giving a range. So in relation to collisions, they said that they would expect between twenty nine and two hundred and seventeen a year, depending on how many people break away, and that that would translate to between five and thirty five more fatalities, depending on basically how it broke down. And in the in relation to the economic impact, again, you can't impact it because you can't predict it because it really depends on the slowdown. Um, they said it was 255 million to 3.8 billion. And as I said, I haven't seen the report, Michael, but I would I would say one of the problems that was likely in the report is this. The economic costs become worse the more people stay on the motorway, because then you have to hit the speed uh, limit reduction. The debts become worse the more people take off the motorway. Well, I don't know if that's true. I mean, yeah, the, the debts will increase, would, you'd imagine, would increase. But you're, the speed is going to be reduced anyway, because even if you're, if you're driving at an unsafe speed on a back road, that would be... That you're still talking about driving only maybe at 40 or 50 miles an hour. You, you're not going to be able to drive at 120 kilometers an hour unless you are genuinely a professional rally driver on most of these back roads. So well, and you, these back you, roads you, have, have a speed limit of 100 kilometers. Yeah. They shouldn't, the, but they do. But the other thing I'd say that you should remember that this is being... The, the, the reduction in the speed limit is, going, is taking place in conjunction with another... Mm-hmm change which is taking place at the same time, which is, it seems to me, is going to have an exacerbating effect on this and therefore potentially could push the numbers up higher, which is, as you know, there is now, they're, they're in the process of starting to do you know, this thing where you you have, where the camera is going to estimate your speed on the basis of where the point when you started your journey and when you finished your journey and they can average out your speed and see if you have in fact broken the speed limit at some stage in it. I I would actually just like to touch on something that Ledin said. And he said, I have travelled around Europe by bike and train. They do so much over there to control speeds off the main road network. That can all be done. The idea that you divert all these cars off the motorway and it's inevitable that more people die is utterly ridiculous. There are thousands of design interventions that are effective and are used in other countries that could be used in Ireland. It is just ridiculous to suggest that this would happen, Michael. I think there's two interesting things there. One is that suggests that there are interventions we should be doing to improve the safety of our roads, which we aren't currently doing, which I'm not sure how the um, the Road Safety Authority people would take. But th- this line, the idea that you divert all these cars off the motorway and it's inevitable that more people die is utterly ridiculous. It's not. It's absolutely reasonable. And we have decades upon decades of research showing the, the different uh, safety, uh, the different risk of accidents on different types of roads. We know there are differences 
and motorways are very safe in comparison to some of the smaller local roads. So even if you put in all of these things, and I'd be very curious what these thousands of design interventions he has in mind are, you're still going to cause people to die. The truth is, you made a, reason, a very decent point there, Gary. You said that the, the, the speed limit on, on a number of these roads is 100 kilometres an hour, right? And the fact is, on many of these roads, you cannot drive safely at 100 kilometres an hour. And in fact, I would say the vast majority of people do not drive on certain stretches of these roads at that speed. They they could, they reduce their speed because they simply, it, it would be too difficult and too stressful. And you would have a sense of your own personal safety that would 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 reduce that. I don't. Even if you were to just reduce the speed up, the, the we have a problem. We have a lot of roads. I mean, and some parts of the country more than others. You have a lot of roads, and the, the problem is the roads themselves. And a lot of these roads, people mostly drive at twenty or thirty forty miles an hour because that is as safe as you can drive. Most people outside of nineteen-year-old chaps who are just who think they're, shall, shall we say they are immortal, tend to drive with a consciousness of their own safety in mind. It's not that people are all daredevils. So, and also, I don't know what he's talking about in other countries. I I, I lived in I lived in Italy for a very long time in the north of Italy, just relatively safe. I mean. They had problems actually on the motorways there. That tended to be sort of Friday night, young people, both drunk and uh, on drugs, coming out at three o'clock and four o'clock in the morning uh, from nightclubs, and that had its own problems. But I have driven around Germany, Switzerland, uh, but the south of France. I, I'm not, a, I'm not aware. Also, Irish roads are actually very safe. I mean, as if you look at fatalities, but it seems to me absolutely reasonable to say that if you're going to considerably increase the traffic on roads of a lesser quality, then you're going to produce a higher number of accidents. I can actually think of one situation in which the Greens are absolutely right, and this legislative change will in no way impact upon deaths or road usage or anything of that nature. Uh, that being one in which the general public does not believe there is any actual risk of being caught speeding. Because, I mean, if you don't think you're going to be caught speeding, why would you care if the road speed goes down um, at all? Uh, there is actually one other uh, re re report I wanted to mention briefly, Michael. Um, and that's the CSO report that came out during the week, the sexual violence report. Yeah, that's a weird one. Uh, the headline figures were 52% of women reported experiencing sexual violence in their lifetime, 28% of men reported experiencing sexual violence in their lifetime, 22% uh, of those aged 18 to 24 reported experiencing sexual violence both as an adult and a child, and 8% of those aged 65 and over reported experience sexual violence both as an adult and as a child, which taking those two figures together is actually quite startling. Um, so 18 to 24, 22% both as an adult as a child, 65 and over, 8 both as an adult as a child. Now, there's some methodological things with this that I wanted to mention. Um, and I don't think they're going to be mentioned anywhere because no one wants to be the person to mention them. The first is the definition of sexual violence, which is very broad. And it's broad in a way that's become very normal in the study of uh, sexual violence. But 
has had many problems because it's so broad that we've seen instances in which people who have been classed as experiencing sexual violence have said that they don't believe they experience sexual violence and then it, it gets into its whole thing. And we can touch on that, Michael, in a bit. What I wanted to talk about is the actual response rate of the survey. So people who've, who've read some of my stuff in Grift will be aware that I talk about this fairly commonly because it is one of the most common problems with surveys. And it, it comes from a lot of different... Um, it, uh, there are many different causes for it. What it effectively is, is a response bias or a non-response bias, is this. If you take 100 people and you ask them a question, and some of those people are more likely to answer the question than others, you can create a bias in your response. Now, sometimes this is very simple to fix. If you ask a question and people of a certain age are more likely to answer it than those who are older, but you know the rate of, of whatever you're asking about is similar in the older population, you can just weigh the results properly and you, you'll get a fairly equal answer. The problem is this. When you start asking people certain things, you run the risk that certain people are more or less likely to respond to it. So if you survey people on sexual violence, you run the risk that people who have experienced sexual violence are more or less likely to respond. In the same way, if you were to run a survey on environmental issues, people who are very interested in environmental issues may be more likely to respond. This is something the CSO were aware of, Michael, and they put things in place to try and deal with it. Here's the problem. The CSO, and I had a brief uh, back and forth with some of the CSO people about this. The CSO specifically came from an assumption that the primary risk to the accuracy of these results was under-reporting, which is to say that they felt the people who had experienced sexual violence would be uh, highly sensitive to these questions and would be therefore less likely to respond to them than members of the general public who had or who hadn't experienced sexual assault. And what that involves basically is you end up doing what's called, uh, you end up weighing the results where you might think if you know 10 people respond to a survey, you know, a response is a response is a response. But basically what weighing involves is you turn, let's say one of those is in an underrepresented group. So you treat that as if it was two different responses. You put increased weight in certain areas basically to try and make it representative because if it's not representative, it's pointless. I mean, it might be interesting, but it doesn't actually represent the populace. So they did that in this case. And they are coming from an assumption that underreporting is the primary issue. And there is some research that says underreporting is an issue. But there's also other reporting that says overreporting is the issue, which is to say that people with experience of sexual violence are more likely to respond to these kind of surveys. And from the research I've seen, I would actually take the, the stance that that is the more likely risk here. And this is important for this reason. This research is very important. And it should be accurate. And there is now a concern about the accuracy of its results. As I said, I had a, a bit of a back and forth through email with the, the CSO people. And my final email to them was that, you know, you seem to have come from this position, but what if it was this and just, you know, didn't get a result, but, you know, maybe they haven't gotten back to me yet. Maybe they will. But it was, a, you know, kind of an odd point to kill the uh, conversation. So this is important enough that it should be accurate. And it's not going to be reported that it could potentially be inaccurate because... 
the mainstream media is not really filled with people who want to stand up and go, well, actually, less women may have been raped. Because it kind of has a certain look about it, Michael. Yeah, yeah. It, it It's important that... And the, okay, there's two things about it that I that made me wonder. Now, first of all, it's shall we? I think yeah, the, the issue of selection is a very important one. But then we have what we have decided to should constitute what we're going to call sexual violence. Now, if we look, for example, at the survey itself, right? And uh, so there's questions. For example, one question is: in the last twelve months, has anyone made crude or sexually explicit marks to you that you found offensive, humiliating or intimidating while you were online, including social media, dating apps or discussion boards, right? So if somebody made a crude remark that you found offensive, that would be a positive case, right? Again, if you like the question, has anyone made a crude or sexually explicit remark that you found offensive, blah, 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 um, in person or by text or by phone call? So there, it would be a thing. And if you think another question in harassment or physical contact is, have you experienced any of the following behaviours in your daily life, for example, in a public place or at home or at work? Physical contact, for example, touching or hugging or being in close proximity that made you feel offended, humiliated or intimidated. No, or humiliated or intimidated, that would be bad, although it's very much, again, a subjective thing, but offended. Being in close proximity to someone which made you feel offended. Now, I'm not saying that that's a pleasant thing, but if we're going to start to to bleed out the, what we're considering to be sexual violence, there's obviously a hierarchy here. We're talking from the top and we go flow, flow down. And there is a concern, I think, with a lot of people wondering, because if this, if we're talking about serious, what they is called sexual violence, is what we would understand by that traditionally. Well, then we seem to be looking at a savage epidemic, and that's what makes me a little bit suspicious. Do you remember we had the conversation about UCD? Oh, yes, where you, you have rape rates that would have been excessive during the Congolese Civil yeah. War. and the and uh, What was obvious to, to me about why this wasn't the case at all was because if we actually believed the survey, and if the people who'd taken the survey and were the authorities in UCD and the people associated with them believed it to be true. The response would not have been, which it was, to set up a committee to examine the subject. The response would have been to bring in the army and probably close down UCD for six months because it would be the most dangerous place in the world for a person to be at risk of sexual, sexual assault. So we, know, But they didn't do that. No, they didn't. And I think, Michael... Part of the problem with studies like this is potentially study issues with the study, like as I said, the weighting, their assumptions as to over-response or under-response. But those are all those are all arguable. You can debate those. There is the study itself and there's the possible methodological issues. And I think there likely are some just because some of the results are a bit odd. But there's also how it is then used in the media and politics to push for particular policy or cultural standpoints often by people who don't understand what's actually being talked about, because what's being talked about and what's being looked at is in a very particular academic sense. So for instance, Michael, do you know the definition of the word violence that was used in this survey? Go on, I do actually, because I've read the survey, but... So, just this is for the listener then, I suppose. 
Violence as a term is sometimes associated with the use of force, but can also mean having a marked or powerful effect on someone, which includes actions or words that are intended to hurt people. So when they say sexual violence, the public thinks sexual assault, rape, child abuse. But there are many things that can have a marked or powerful effect, including actions or words that are intended to hurt people, which are not inside what the public understand when you say sexual violence. And you have people in the media who, and in, politi- uh, uh, in politics, who will use results like this, either not knowing that these words don't mean what they think they mean, or knowing but knowing that the public will misunderstand them, and doing so deliberately. And policy will be based off these kind of results, which is why we should absolutely get it right. Um... And again, I I don't think there's going to be much discussion of this in the mainstream press, because I think a lot of journalists are, one, very snappish themselves on ideological grounds to anything in this issue. But there's also a concern that if you bring up these legitimate concerns, people will say things like, well, you don't care that women are being sexually assaulted, which is just this, you know, anytime someone says something like that, I have the immediate sense of, well, if it's important, should we not care if we're right? That would seem... <laughs> to mean we should be careful about this and we should get as much detail as we have. I mean, the, the thing that I said, Michael, about the overall prevalence of um, sexual violence to go from 8% across both childhood and adult life of those who are 65 and older and to be 22% of those younger than 24 across both childhood and adult life. Are we to believe that both child abuse and the sexual abuse of adults has increased by 300%? Are we to believe that what somebody over 65 understands as violence is substantially different as what somebody under 24 understands violence to mean? Yeah, now, the, the way the way this study is done is it asks what are called behavioural questions. So instead of asking someone, have you ever been sexually exalted? They say, you know, in the last year, has this ever happened to you? And this is actually part of of what the problem is with the definition. If you ask someone certain things and they say, yes, you put that down as sexual violence, that person may not think that that experience constituted sexual violence. Or if you ask, were you coerced into something? Someone might read that as, have you ever had sex with someone or a sexual encounter with someone where you weren't really into it? But you, you know, weren't against it happening. You were just not, shall we say, enthusiastic, Michael. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's that's not that's only one particular you know situation you can find yourself in. But when you start asking people behavioural questions, there's actually a whole load of problems you can cause for yourself. It's very clear why people do this because they don't want a situation where people don't want to say they've been sexually assaulted and so tell you no, they haven't. Yes. But this also runs the risk of you, of you basically deciding someone has been sexually assaulted when they don't think they have been. So you can kind of come at it from the other direction. And there is some, like, there's a real consideration there of, if they don't consider they've been sexually assaulted, ethically, can you say they have been? If they can, you know, explain it and they just think it was whatever. Well, I think that they, I'm speculating here, but I think that the answer they would say is yes. That sometimes because of cultural or historical reasons that people don't understand what has happened to them correctly, they they feel that they have to describe it. But in fact, 
under our uh, under our new and current understanding, we realise that what has happened to them is in fact a form of sexual violence. That they just don't they don't understand it. That's exactly how it's done. The problem there is when you start saying, "Oh well, there's, there's cultural issues here, and there's cultural sensitivities and understandings of it." you're then presuming that your own cultural views of it are correct and basically rejecting the views of the respondent. And of course, that's right. Anything which is, if you're going to, listen, we are bound by culture. That is a fact. We are also, not utterly, but partially at least bound by language. And language itself is influenced by by time and culture and the evolution of ideas. But if we go back to the question that on the, on the, uh, the survey, which is on harassment one, right? So there's you're asked in the twelve months, has anyone ever made a sexual, a crude or sexually explicit remarks to you? So first of all, it may be that a man or a woman at the age of sixty-five will have a different understanding of what is a crude or sexually explicit remark. They may culturally, if they come from a certain kind of backgrounds, not think of it crude or sexually, but rather just adult, you know, just the kind of thing that adults will say. And is it offensive? humiliating or intimidating. Again, culturally, they would say, no, it wasn't humiliating or intimidating. Offensive, it didn't offend me. I thought it was, you know, it was out of place or blue. I didn't like it. But no, I wasn't offended by it. But I think that if you're looking at younger people, they're far more likely to say, yes, I was offended by that. So here's here's one other example that I thought was odd. And either is some, okay, maybe this is right, Michael. Maybe I'm wrong about this. But I think this is a clear sign that something has gone very wrong in your sampling. For those aged 18 to 24, 5 in 10 women said they experienced sexual violence as a child. 49% of women in the 18 to 24 range. Yeah. I, I don't think that's right. I just do not think that's right. In the same way, women aged 18 to 24... 65% said they had experienced sexual violence at some point in their lifetime. That compares with those women who are aged uh, 65 and over who gave 35%. I I would be very surprised if that's accurate. Well, I would say 35% is a very big number. I mean, it's a shocking number. I mean, it's that at that time, you're talking about 50%. I suppose the people framing this question, or certainly an activist, would say, "Well, in we, what you or we are showing here is the complacent reaction of pe- of men within society who don't understand the experience of, that women have when it comes to sexual violence." Well, I would make the point here, Michael, that there are no solid surveys in this area other than this. I mean, there was one done twenty years ago, so. Yes, you can absolutely say that I don't understand the experience of women in this area, but I would rebut that even if it is a woman in the age 18 to 24 demographic who is saying that, they themselves don't understand the experience of that demographic because that demographic is so many people of so many different experiences and there's research is so per that I don't think anyone could say they actually understand now, you can say your own experience is different or your peer group experience is different. That's fine. But mm. that's not the same as understanding the demographic as a whole. In the same way, my, uh, Michael, I don't understand the life experiences of, 
you know, men who live in rural locations and are my exact age, because that's probably tens of thousands of people who are very different than me. And I'm sorry, I just don't, I do not believe that 49% of women aged between 18 and 24 were experienced sexual violence as a child under any definition of sexual violence, which I think you could defend. Okay, but what you're saying there is, it's, you're, you're, we're not talking about Scotsman and true Scotsman, that it, the question depends to a large degree that you, you, what has happened here is that the, the, the definition of what we consider to be sexual violence has been so expanded as to, to, to create a category where people will, over half the people will fall into it. And but that that understanding of what sexual violence constitutes is not what most people in the world in society in Ireland would understand sexual violence to be. I would also make this point. I think it's a combination of that, but that actually you can limit the impact of that basically by study design. But when we get into the idea of of response bias and non-response bias, the CSO reached out to over 12,000 people and had a response rate of less than 40%. Now, that's kind of comparable to some of what you've seen with these kind of surveys in uh, other parts of Europe. But for a survey like this, Michael you probably want as close to 90% completion as you can get. And I think one of the problems here is that there's always a reason to look for a larger number to try and get more people involved in your study than you probably technically need. And I would say in this instance, far more people than they actually needed. But the larger amount of people you give this survey to, the wider the gap, uh, sorry, the wider the impact uh, a response bias or non-response bias can have because there's just more people. So, you know, if you ask 12,000 people and 4,000 people get back, you don't know how far off your answers are. And they could be massively off, just massively off. Where if you ask less people, it's it's easier, one, to get higher completion rates, which means you can stand over it more. And, and that is, I think, very important. But I there are results in this, Michael. I I just don't believe. I I, I do not no, believe. I I I understand. I understand. I understand that. I mean, I, just for clarity, I would say, if if one of the polling organisations decided they could, they got the demographics, they broke it down, and they they polled four thousand people, right, face to face interviews, and they got responses fairly close to that. That well, then you will be looking at a sample which you would expect to produce a result which was very, very accurate indeed. A whole sample of 4,000 people with, with near, 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 near 100% response rate would be considered to be a very, very decent sample. I mean, general elect, generally political polls have slightly over 1,000 of a sample and have a top, have a, a, a considered to have a margin of error rate somewhere between three plus or minus 3%. But this is not that kind of thing. Can I ask you a, a, a question beyond the survey itself, Karen? Because I've gone through it, and there was one kind of one question which did come out at, at the end of it. It may seem like a stupid question. I don't know what, what is the purpose of this? Be, okay, I understand. We need we want to gather data, and that's fine. And we like gathering data, and it's good to have data, it's good to have information. But what I don't see here are questions that might be useful in providing a solution to a problem. It's just data. 
it, there's no, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of context to it that could be useful. No. So the CSR was asked to do this by the government for a very simple reason. It's been about 20 years since a major study of uh, experiences of sexual violence in Ireland uh, has been undertaken. Now, ideally, I mean, I don't see a reason why you couldn't run a survey like this every year, every every two years, every whatever. Yes. Yeah. It, it took the CSO years to pull this thing together, far longer than it should have. And I, I don't find their explanations of why terribly convincing. So effectively, this is to be a, um, you know, an independent repository of the stats so that everyone can agree on the nature of the problem. And on that front, I think unless they can give some very compelling explanations for certain results and how certain things were done, it it has absolutely failed. I I would point, Michael, to this thing called the Savvy Report. Now, the Savvy Report was the Sexual Abuse and Violence in Ireland report. It came out in 2002. It was commissioned by the um, Rape Crisis Centre, I believe. Sorry, the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre, yes. Um, And was done by some very highly accredited um, doctors. I think it was the Department of Psychology of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. That looked at about 3,000 people. They had an over 70% um, participation rate or completion rate but for those who were uh, invited, which immediately raises questions about why the CSO were so bad at actually getting responses because you're yeah. talking less than half that most likely. And they they reported, and again, I'm not saying this report is, is perfect. There could be under-reporting or over-reporting here, even with 71% or 72 maybe completion rate. There could still be that. But their finding was that about 20% of uh, women experienced sexual abuse in childhood. Um, and then there was a, a further amount. I can't remember the figure where there was what was called non-contact sexual abuse. And you saw with men about 16% uh, reported experiencing um, sexual abuse or contact sexual abuse, which you, know, you can you can figure out. I'm not saying that's right. There were, you could raise many of these methodological issues with that, but that had a far higher response rate. It had a far more reasonable sample size and it's giving a result less than half that seen in this report. So how did that happen? Because if that did happen, if the, the current report is actually accurate and not just on the childhood sexual abuse, or, sorry, on sexual violence, but also on the difference between those over 65 and those in the 24, 18 to 24 demographic, if that has actually happened, there has been a seismic shift in rates of sexual abuse in Ireland on a kind of scale you don't see outside of the total disintegration of a culture. And that, again, kind of leads us to the, the, the problem with the UCD report. If that's true, why is no one acting like it's true? Why are they, what, that's, and that's the, my response to, again and again to these reports, that if these people were serious, and if they believed that what they were saying actually was a true reflection of what's happening in Irish society, then we would see mass-scale panic and response. But we don't. What we see is somebody suggesting that we should set up a committee and maybe get a report done by some people in Trinity. 
And if that's your response, well, then I think that's pretty indicative that you don't really believe that what these reports are suggesting is happening, is in fact happening. But particularly given this, Michael, think about this. When, we, when we're talking about three times higher than what's being reported from people who are 65 and plus, you should remember people who are 65 and plus have 40 years at least on the other demographic in which they could have been, they could have experienced sexual violence. So it's not just a 300% increase. I mean, I'm not, you'd have to see the exact ages of people to actually work this out. But you're talking about a 300% increase condensed into six years. Yeah, and also, Gary, not just that they have far more time in available to them to have these experiences or not, they also at a time when you didn't have child safety policies, where you didn't have awareness, where you didn't have public discussion, where you didn't have uh, a series of, of legislative uh, and social responses. So you would expect, if anything, you would expect that these numbers would be inverted. I mean, that's the thing. You're coming, you're coming from a time when we're commonly told the Irish culture towards women was horrific, where there was marital rape was legal, Widespread sexual abuse with you know, widespread sexual abuse in schools, orphanages, the in the homes, the clerical sexual abuse scandals were going on. Uh, you had large institutions where large numbers of vulnerable people were contained, and whether it was in hospitals, psychiatric hospitals, mother and child homes, reform schools, uh, boarding schools, so on and so forth. Yes, I mean. The, it was a culture that you would have had, there would be far, far higher levels of both opportunities and, and reality of sexual abuse. And just, Gary, before we, because we're coming up to the hour and I want to let the people go shortly, there's two things I want to do a drive by and then I want to finish on a fun story. Just, if, we, if you don't mind, first drive by is I just want to, two things I want to draw the attention of, of our dear listeners to. First of all, there was uh, a it's slightly out of date, but anyway, last week, I think it was Posey Parker, whose name, Kelly, is it something Kelly, something, I can't remember, her, 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 her nom de plume, her stage name is Posey Parker, she is a, uh, how would you, she, she, the pejorative term, which I think has been reappropriated, is turf, she is anti-transgender ideology speaker, anyway, she had rather a tough time in New, in New Zealand, um, a number of uh, trans advocates and uh, activists here said, let's try and do the same thing here. She tried to have a meeting in Dublin, but the safety of the meeting could not be guaranteed by Garda O'Connor, so she didn't, but she went to Belfast, where the uh, the PSNI seemed to be perfectly capable of protecting her. But the thing I wanted to draw my attention was, these people, Gary, are history and irony devoid. They have no history, no irony, nothing. They're at this protest. They're protesting for rights. They're protesting for freedom. They're protesting uh, against the fascists and the bigots and the far right and the name of freedom. And they're doing that with a flag, which is the uh, the trans flag, you know, that blue, pinky, white flag, which is sewn on to an old Soviet flag, red, with, with the, the hammer and sickle. And underneath it, a portrait of Lenin. I'm more familiar with Stalin's views on homosexuals than I am with uh, Lenin. To, to sum those up, Stalin, not a fan of the gays. 
or as he would say, the degenerates. Lenin, Lenin, not that great either. Wouldn't have, uh, to be honest, Michael, uh, these are the sort of people who had Lenin or Stalin been in power would have been classes degenerates put against a wall and shot. And I don't think that's hyperbole. I think that's legitimately what would have happened to them. It is, Gary, but you know, no matter, as you say, Lenin did have his good sides. He had his bad sides too. And I think that for the wider society, he wouldn't have been, he was not a, it wasn't a good experience. As I think it's a Robert Service's uh, biography of Stalin, Lenin, Lenin and Stalin, I, have, I think it's Service, makes the point rather powerfully that people talk about Stalin, oh, Stalin was this horrible monster, but Lenin, I, Lenin was a monster. Lenin had been a monster. Lenin and Trotsky also, the, even though uh, our, the late elevated Titchens tried to defend him, Trotsky was the man responsible for the famous quote, the, the purpose of terror is to terrorise, and he, he did so very effectively as leader of the Red Armies. Lenin was a monster. He was responsible for the deaths of many millions. Now, he did introduce the new economic programme, which then Stalin backtracked on, unfortunately, for the people of Russia, the people of the Soviet Union. But I just, anyway, it just, it, it, I thought, really? You're going to protest and you're going to bring it on a hammer and sickle. And I know it's the kind of tedious comment that people from the right are always making, but I don't care. It's true. The hammer and sickle should be just as offensive as a swastika. You should be as socially inhibited about going around displaying pictures of Lenin and Stalin and, 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 and hammers and sickles as you should be pictures of Goebbels, Hitler and, and swastikas. These, this is a regime which was murderous and lasted, and as long as it lasted, it imprisoned, tortured, and murdered its citizens. And anyway, these people. Um, there was uh, Claire Daly, just very briefly, Claire was in China. And why wouldn't you be? I'm told the Chinese food in China is very good, Gary. Um, where we. Long-term listeners will know that we have talked a number of times and at length. And it, I think Paddy did the interview, didn't he? Paddy interviewed that man that wrote the book on the Uyghur genocide. No, no it wasn't. The, it, it wasn't. It was the the transplants, the the live transplant victims. Yes, it, it was about the harvesting of the uh, organs of the Falun Gong. Also Uyghurs. Also Uyghurs. Also Uyghurs. But the Falun Gong in particular had the misfortune of being both classed as an opponent of the Chinese state and to follow a religion which preached a lifestyle which led to them having very healthy, and some would say sellable, organs. <laughs> yeah, don't drink, don't smoke. China is the only place in the world that I can think of where you can basically get an organ transplant on spec. Nowhere else can you book an organ transplant <laughs> ahead funny. of time for the very simple reason that you need to... You know, someone needs to die for other reasons. And so there's a, shall we say, Michael, a certain um, sort of, you know, you'll get it when it becomes available. But in China, you can book ahead, which indicates uh, very clearly that they have a, um, you know, Michael, very predictable source of uh, organs. And I don't think we look into that enough because when you think about it, that suggests certain things. It's pretty strongly. Anyway, in, there's, there's a certain... There was a certain style of Soviet propaganda movie film, Newsreel, which became kind of ironically popular, sort of postmodern kitsch sensibility. Uh, very often they involved tractors. And this year, tractor production has broken all previous records. But in much that kind of style, there's, there's a, Claire's, and there's 
Claire's in a video where it, it shows them harvesting record harvests of cotton in Jiajing. And in it, first of all, Claire says that uh, accusations of genocide against the Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in Xinjiang are, quote, complete and utter nonsense, which is good to know. And a direct quote, Tony McDougall, sorry, it's not funny. You must be very bad at genocide and then laughs. Now, Michael, it is actually quite funny, but not in the way it was probably intended to be funny. I would recommend have a look at it out there, people out there. Go and have a look at the video and see what you think yourself. I think it is worth looking. But before we finish, I just want to go back because we talked about this last week. Uh, We mentioned the fact that the Germans had decided to close their last three nuclear plants. Now, I can't remember who said it. It might have been someone like Mencken or it might have been someone like Seoul or I can't. Anyway, there's a, there's a quote which says, you can avoid reality, but you cannot avoid the consequences of avoiding reality. Anyway, it has been reported that uh, on the day, basically, that they announced the closure of the three, or not the, the announcement, the actual closure of the three, the three um, nuclear plants, something happened within the electricity uh, market in Germany, Gary. What do you think might have happened to the price of electricity? Well, I mean, there was a you know there was a very big celebration from the German Greens um, because, of course, they managed to close all these nuclear power plants, and the. Energy sellers were also had, I would imagine, Michael, a moment of not celebration, but certainly deep satisfaction as they put up the electrical prices by up to 45%. E.ON, which is the uh, main supplier in Nordrhein-Westfalia, put up the prices in Nordrhein-Westfalia by 45%. This is a quote from Dusseldorf. 98 basic providers have increased or announced price increases in Northern Fallai, and market leader Eon is following up in June. Price breaks help only to a limited extent. Antitrust office plans to investigate providers. <laughs> so, for example, uh, quoting here, uh, and it's the head of the economic office. Thousands of consumers in Northern Fallai have to dig deeper. Now, remember, by the way, Germany, I think, has the highest most expensive electricity already in Europe. Am I am I right on that? If it's not the most, it's very close to it. So already, uh, so thousands of consumers in Northern Westphalia have to dig deeper into your, your pockets for electricity. Market leader Eon is raising its prices for the basic supply on June the 1st and has announced to many consumers, customers these days in parts of Northern Westphalia, the new working price is 49.44 cents per gross kilowatt hours, which means an adjustment. I love that. Gary, an adjustment of about 45% for an average consumption. That is just brilliant. You know what we sometimes say, Michael? You made your bed and now it's time to get fucked in it. <laughs> You're the Italian version of that, which I really do like. The Italian version is, I grew on a bicicletta, that's a bit that much. Any translated means, you wanted a bike, now you may pedal. <laughs> and that is that is very much the response I think that some people will have to the German electricity. So presumably, some of them voted for these people. You wanted a bike, well, now you may pedal, and that in this case actually works very well because what many of these consumers in North Westphalia, which is a wealthy a wealthy place, will perhaps have electric cars, Gary. Well, maybe now the time is for them to get on their bike and pedal because the price of charging their electric car has gone up. 
quite a bit. I think on that uplifting note, Michael, at least for those of our listeners who are not of a Germanic persuasion, uh, we should leave it for this week. We think we will. Have a good week and we'll see you again on Sunday. All the best.